At the top of your bulletin for tonight's service, you find this word from the book of Hosea. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us, even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. This morning we highlighted how these pa- this passage in chapter 28 is not just for Jacob. It's certainly not just for his physical children, uh, the people of the Jews. It is for us. It is for us and for our children. We saw the worship that, uh, or the, the goodness of God shown to him in the revelation of the latter and what he saw in his dream there in what would uh, come to be called Bethel. Well, we go now from, from that to his response to these things. We go from what Jacob felt as he was clearly fearful as he goes to sleep. We go from what he saw. We go from what he heard to tonight to talk about what he did in response to that vision. Great and rich promises have been spoken to him. And that from a God who is dressed, as we saw this morning, in grace and mercy. There's not a hint of reproof or rebuke to him as God's blessing is placed upon Jacob. And now, should we not, as we look at the second part, be impressed with how immediately, how quickly... Jacob grasps the reality of what he has just experienced in this revelation. There's an an immediate correction on his part. He awakens and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. There's There's the first thing out of his mouth. He realizes the reality of what has taken place and realizes that he didn't realize it and corrects that. Secondly, we see that... um, that uh, while he's ignorant of these things, God is not, um, is not presenting to us his own presence to be judged by our senses, but rather uh, to be learning according to his word. This fear then comes over him in the next verse. In verse 17, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? Realizing, remember, what happened at Bethel? This is the place where Abraham had first come, where Abraham had built an altar, where Abraham had called upon the name of the Lord in the very beginning of his pilgrimage in Genesis chapter 12. And so he is is fearful of the presence of God there. But why be afraid of such a gospel God coming wrapped, as it were, in such mercies? And then thirdly, we see here, uh, the following morning, after he apparently goes back to sleep and rises, at least in verse 18, in the morning, He worships. He worships by making a monument commemorating what took place there. He worships by making a vow to God regarding God's care for him, which had been promised to him in the dream. And then thirdly, he worships him by promising to tithe all of these as elements of his service to the Lord. So this is how things unfold with him as he responds to the grace of God. We cannot just respond to the things of God with amazement and with wonder. It has to go beyond that to our own active, believing reply. And that's what we take from this passage. Three things in particular which we have just outlined. And the first of his reply, the first of his response, is Jacob is moved and somewhat ashamed that he didn't realize that God was in that place. 
perhaps again tying in with his grandfather's altar and what had been offered there and the promise there regarding the presence of God. Uh, The uh, Scottish Presbyterian minister Robert Murray McShane wrote that there are two things always to be trembled at, the presence of God that reaches to all places and the word of God that reaches to all times. But here in Jacob's instance, the presence of God surprised him. He did not realize this. And that accounts for this strange statement. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This is a reality that men and women and young people face all the time. There are those who reject the idea that the Lord is present everywhere. There are those who say God is not. God is not present. I can flee from him. And they say with Pharaoh, who is the Lord or where is he that I should serve him? I know him not. And there are many of the opposite mind to what we read here in verse 16, who say, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it. There are many happy souls who know their God and know his presence and walk in that presence and enjoy that presence, enjoy his smile upon them. That's how we ought to be living our lives, practicing the presence of God, day by day, moment by moment. God always has his presence with us. His eye is always upon us. Our God is not in just one place or another, but he is always with us. As the missionary was challenged by one of the idolaters in in Africa who was very upset that they could not see the Christian's God, their God could be seen. They could point to their idol. They say, where is your God? And rightly the missionary responded, where is he not? He is everywhere. He fills every place. Now, some also are with Jacob, who do cry out, Oh, that I might know where to find him, though he be not far from any one of us. And that's what he's experiencing. You and I have probably experienced the same things. God has been with us when we did not know it, did not realize it, did not sense it. This is a reality still, says Charles Spurgeon. God was with you before your conversion, if you were converted in your adulthood, and you knew it not. At the time when you had no concern for spiritual things, for the Bible, for prayer, for worship, for judgment, for heaven and hell, these things you didn't care about. Um, Yet God kept you. God was with you uh, until your blind eyes were opened and your dead hearts began to beat. Does it not amaze you how many times, think about your life, if you were saved later on, how often God spared you, God was with you, God protected you, God provided for you. He did all of that. I can definitely look in my teenage years and see time after time where the Lord was watching over me even though I, was, I did not have my eyes at all upon him. And since we have come to him, We are not always knowing his presence with us. How oftentimes does the discouraged Christian think to himself or herself that some kind of a time of strife, a time of struggle, a time of failure, a time of trial, those are times clearly that God's presence must not be with us. God must at that time leave our side to ourselves. He becomes deus abscondus. He is the absent God. When in fact, it's those times when we are struggling, when we are crying out that the Lord is is all the closer and that for your good and for his glory. So let us face from this first point, this fact. We are slow to believe and to apprehend 
his presence. Perhaps we think that it's just too good to be true. It's hard to believe these wonderful promises that are so high as the heavens above. And we're like, can this really be for me? Can this really apply to my life? Because it seems so far above uh, my expectations. We are slow, as we're going to see in Luke chapter um, uh, 20, 24, next Sunday evening, the, the disciples who were slow of heart to believe and to therefore understand. We are slow to faith. We're, we're cold in our faith. We're slow to hope. We're slow to love. Our hearts are not responding quickly. And at the same time, we still have much dirt still in our eyes, says Spurgeon. We are blinded by the smoke of this world, of the flesh, and of the devil. And so this ties in with the application of how Jacob responds and how we are to respond along with Jacob and make sure that we're understanding that God's presence is with us. Jesus has given you exceedingly great and precious promises that he would never leave you or forsake you. He who has all authority in heaven and earth has said, I will never uh, leave you or let you go. He holds you in the palm of his hand as he gives to you everlasting life. And then in the same breath as he is quaking, surely the Lord is in this place, I did not know it. Verse 17 says he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And the text goes on to speak about how he changes the name of that place based upon the presence of God in the house of God, in the gate of heaven, to the name house of God or Bethel. What state of conscience Jacob had at the theft of his blessing is not entirely known. The Lord's presence to him, coming near to him, could have greatly aggravated that guilt, could have accented it. God could have come to him in a dream that inspired total fear because of his deception and, as it were, almost stealing that blessing, and yet the blessing stuck. But this was a stairway to heaven and not a stairway to hell. The presence of God to him was high and holy and something that was awesome, This tied in with that whole vision of this ladder or stairway that reaches down to that very place. This is a presence of God that was with him, full of angels, full of heaven, full of the goodness of God. And above all, the grace of God as God is showing mercy to him and not a peep about his unworthiness. This is the sweet and awesome place. It is the very house of God on earth. It is the true gate of heaven opened. This fear, then, that he has, I don't think should be read as some kind of a carnal fear, of a mere creaturely fear. It's not a temporal, ungodly dread of even being in the presence of God, no. But this is that good kind of fear that is the centerpiece of of a a fear in the Bible. This is that reverence. This is that, 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 um, that respect and honor and worship and adoration and love and obedience that is to be in the heart of the regenerate. This is the kind of fear that swallows up all other fears. If you fear God, this will swallow up the lesser fears, the carnal fears that your neighbors have, that your friends without Christ have. So we should look at that as as this 
godly, gracious attitude. John Chrysostom, early church father, said the place of God's public worship is a place of angels and archangels, cherubim and seraphim. It is the kingdom of God come down to earth in Christ. It is very heaven on earth. And indeed, it would be, there is a a trembling that we should have. The Lord says, I have made heaven. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house are you going to build for me? And yet I will dwell with those who are of of a lowly, a humble spirit, those who tremble at my word. So the house of God is focused upon the presence of God. What makes this church a church is not these four walls or this ceiling. Do you realize it was centuries after Christ rose and returned to heaven before the churches began to have their own buildings? They met in humble settings. They did not have a separate place, a sanctuary for worship. It would be decades and centuries after Christ before the church, the New Testament church, would have houses of worship. And once those houses were erected and once Christianity was no longer outlawed and became the approved religion of the state, that presented a whole new set of problems for the church, didn't it? One of the Puritans said it this way. It has stuck with me. I read it at a very early time in my Christian walk. One of the Puritans complained, We once had ministers of gold and vessels of wood, but now we have vessels of gold and ministers of wood. What's the difference? The difference is the presence of God. This is the house of God. It was the house of God to Abraham as he offered his sacrifice and called upon the Lord. It was the house of God to Jacob as he sees the presence of God here and rich with grace, rich with power, rich with these angels. But later, this very place would become what Hosea calls in chapter 4, verse 10, a Beth-Avon, a house of nothing, a house of emptiness. In the days of Jeroboam, when in this very place of Bethel, he set up a golden calf to be worshipped so that Baal would be worshipped instead of going down to Jerusalem. This place would become a Bethaven to Josiah, the great um, uh, reformer uh, towards the end of, of, uh, of Israel's history there before the captivity. Uh, he destroyed uh, that altar uh, unto Baal. William J. remarks on the house of God, God seldom receives anything but formality from those worshipers whose bigoted attachment to any particular mode or building leads them to say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are we. We focus so much upon the externals. Nothing, he says, makes a people dear to God but their resemblance to him. And nothing makes any place sacred but the divine presence. What makes the church the church is Jesus Christ, who is God with us. That and nothing else. Everything is of him and flows in him and through him. There are those who have the house of God, who have fellowship, who have not come to the outer gates of the visible church, There are are saved that are outside of the visible church. 
People who love the Lord, who know the Lord, who've been redeemed by the Lord, who haven't realized the riches of being a part of the visible congregation of Christ. Just as there are those who have the the gates, they have the visible church, but do not have the house. They do not have the saving presence of God for them and to them, for they have neither repented heartily or trusted in Christ truly for salvation. So here's the, the, the second point here of Jacob recognizing this place, this awesome place, and um, uh, tempering his fear with joy and comfort in what God has provided for him. And that leads us to our third point, Jacob worshiping the Lord in verses 18 through 22 as he arises and goes about do, uh, doing these three things. He's, he, we have here the anointed monument in verse 18, using the stone that he slept on as a pillow. And then the first vow that we find in the Bible is here as well in verse 20. If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and so on. And then at the end, the promise to tithe. Those three things, all of them dealing with his devotion, his worship of the living God. And so we begin with memorializing this event, the uh, memorializing the theophany with the stone on which he slept, anointing it with oil. This is certainly an odd act to our eyes. We don't see people doing this. We're not driving down, you know, Brookhurst and people setting up stones and pouring oil upon it, consecrating it or christening it. Um, but in the ancient days, it, it was a permitted thing, even though often these monuments turned into idolatrous affairs. Uh, they nevertheless were permissible as acts of worship and devotion. Deuteronomy 27 permits it. Isaiah 19, 19 permits it, even though in other settings it becomes a snare. This latter passage here speaks about these memorials being a testimony then to ourselves. This is where God came and met with me. And the oil symbolizes the spirit of God being in that place. Uh, perhaps looking to Christ who is the anointed one to be the savior of his people. So we, our, our pillars were built and, 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 uh, and, and placed and named uh, again later in the Genesis account, chapter 35. And the question comes here, are, are we permitted some kind of monuments? Are we not to remember are we not to put, as it were, um, our foot in the ground and say, this is where God ministered to me. This is where he changed me. This is where he caused me to grow. This is where he draw, drew me near to him. Uh, this is where he blessed me. This is where he strengthened me in the warfare. We're, we are to be mindful of God's acts in our lives and not forgetful. Um, we're such an existential people, aren't we? Just the immediate, what is before us? And this passage challenges us to be mindful of what the Lord has wrought. The second part of worship, then, is that Jacob makes a vow in verse 20. Uh, there's a if-then phrase here. If God will, then the Lord will be my God. There's his vow, vowing unto God that he will be his God. This is the first instance of a vow in the Bible, Although it's, it's probable that it's implicit back in the early chapters of Genesis when men began to call upon the name of the Lord, that calling upon the name of the Lord probably included vows there as well. But here we have the first explicit vow, maybe we can put it that way. And we have to admit at first blush, the vow of Jacob might look a tad bit 
uh, fishy. Isn't it kind of carnal? If God will do this, if he'll, if he'll, and de- dealing with just the temporals uh, of life, safety and so forth, and it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to pass this, the sniff test, as they say it. Um, then the Lord will be my, my God. It does seem like that Jacob is here bargaining with the Lord when the Lord had already promised him protection and provision. The, what he says to, to, to Jacob that, you know, he gives the Abrahamic blessings in, in verses 13 and 14. And then he talks about the temporals in verse 15. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. That's already been promised to him, and yet here he is mirroring back that language as though he is bargaining with God. In his um, collection of sermons, James Montgomery Boyce, his whole message on this passage is dedicated on how bad Jacob is here. Oh, he's just, uh, he says, I understand people think that this is okay, that this is a good vow on his part, but I think it really stinks. And he goes through and outlines all the reasons why he thinks it stinks. But I have to agree with the others who think that we should not be reading um, Jacob's vow in that way, in a negative way. I like what uh, Derek Kidner says in his fine little commentary. When he says, Jacob's reply is often condemned as mere bargaining. Yet it was as thorough a response as he knew how to make. It expressed profound awe. 16 and 17 says, this is an awesome place, so I should bargain with God. That doesn't really fit, does it? He's trembled. He's, he's afraid. He has godly fear in his heart. So that stands, that's a strike against saying that his attitude is somehow carnal and lowly. Um, it's, he, it expressed profound awe, a preoccupation, first of all, with the one who'd been encountered, not with the things that were promised. From this, it issued an homage. So he's talking about the fact that the response is about God's presence. God's presence was here, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is God's house. God is in this place. This is the gate of God. That is an attitude of faith and not of carnality. From this it issued in homage and in the vow to pledge himself in covenant. The vow was no more a bargain than any other vow because the idea of the if clause is inherent in the form. You have a protasis and an apodosis. Protasis says if, if, if then is, is, is given out. He says it would be fairer to say that J- Jacob was taking the promise of verse 15 seriously and translating the general promise into the particular. I'm going to need clothing. I'm going to need protection. I'm going to need provision. I'm going to a strange land. We talked this morning about how he was a fearful soul. He was a homebody. We called him a mama's boy. Maybe that was a little harsh, but maybe not. He's probably around 40 years of age at this point. You'd think that he was braver, but it doesn't seem like he was. And then furthermore, he adds, he rightly saw his tithe unto God, not, uh, not as a gift, but as a giving back to God. I will surely give a tenth to you. So I tend to, I've seen both sides. I've actually, I think, believed both sides. At first blush, I thought that Jacob was a scoundrel. And has lessons to learn. No doubt he has some scoundrel in him. No doubt he does still have lessons to learn. I'm not sure that we're seeing that here is the point. So I like Kidner's response. 
he makes this vow. And what is a vow? A vow is nothing else but a religious promise made to God in prayer and grounded upon the promise of God, whereby we tie ourselves by a, in a way of thankfulness to do something that is lawful and within our power with condition of obtaining some further favor at the hands of God, that Jacob vows to God only. He is the sole object of his fear. Therefore, he is also the sole object of his vows. John Trapp. So, he made vows. Unless we be mistaken that somehow Jesus, when he comes in the new covenant, gets rid of vows by saying, do not swear by the altar, swear by the temple, or swear by heaven. Do not swear, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. It is quite clear that taking vows and taking oaths continues in the new covenant. Jesus himself took an oath at his trial. Paul takes an oath when he's on trial. Jesus did not dismiss all oaths and vows. What he was doing in that passage was saying, you Jews are constantly deceiving each other. They do what schoolyard kids do all the time when they're crossing their fingers behind their backs. And so the only time when Jews were really telling the truth to one another was when they said, I swear to God. And they were using that. If they didn't say swear to God, all bets were off. And that's what was being corrected. You don't want to be using oaths that frequently. They're for special occasions. And Jesus was not forbidding taking oaths or vows. So there's the second part of the worship. He is committed to this. God has promised to bring him back. He is the only patriarch, with the exception, I guess, of Abraham, who did go down to Egypt for a brief time. But he's leaving the promised land now for the next 20 years. And he's leaning upon his God to bring him back as God promised. And then the last act of his worship, very briefly, is his tithe at the end of verse 22. And of all that you give me, he recognizes everything comes from the Lord. I will surely give a tenth to you. Um, why does he come up with tithing? How does this pop up? I have no doubt that it's connected with the tithe that Abraham paid to Melchizedek, his own grandfather, and that same principle. Uh, tithing became something quite ugly in the New Testament under the Pharisees. It became something of a fetish with them. Um, but giving a tenth was voluntary before it was commanded in the Mosaic Covenant. And in the New Testament, under the order of Jesus, who is of the, uh, of the order of Melchizedek, all of Abraham's children continue to give proportionately as they are enabled and commanded and led by the Lord. There are those, even Reformed, who have said the tithe is no longer binding, but the fact that we're still under Christ, and Christ is of the house of Melchizedek, and that whole principle, I don't see how you get around that and say, no, we don't, we don't give a tenth. It's an act that says to the Lord and to the world that all that we are and all that we have is his. It says to those around us, that we um, are stewards of what God has given. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. And part of that um, uh, not living for ourselves, living selfishly, is to give uh, a tenth at least back to the Lord. Uh, that's the proportion that we are commanded by the Lord uh, in his kingdom. And we give to him the first 
We want to give to him the best and the highest. Why? Because, first of all, he is worthy. And that's at the heart of worship. Worship says, worthship. God is worthy of this service. Whether it's our gifts, whether it's our promises, whether it is um, our memorials. All of these things ascribe worth to the Lord. And as we give to the work of the church, we are also edifying the saints and building up the people of God as the Lord blesses our tithes and our offerings to the strengthening of his church. What a great reply. What a great response. Jacob has a lot of learning to do. He still has blessings that need to be wrestled for in Genesis chapter 32. But as we said this morning, don't let the, the, the great chapter 32, the wrestling in Peniel, seeing God face to face, don't let that overshadow the riches of Genesis 28. Because Jacob's dream is really awesome. Let's pray. Father, help us from this passage to live as those who know you, to know you as our God, to practice your presence at all times. May the fear of God fill our hearts uh, along with the comforts of the Holy Spirit as we are daily, Lord, uh, feeding upon your word, uh, honoring your presence, seeking to exalt and glorify God, which is the chief end of man, and to enjoy him forever. We know, Lord, the early church enjoyed these very things of, of having the fear of God always before them and the comforts that come from God the Spirit. Let us, Lord, as well, recognize that we are made to worship you. You have saved us for this very purpose, that we might have fellowship with the living God. And that worship, Lord, is your due with all that is in us. And so, Lord, as you have saved us so lavishly, sparing nothing but delivering your very own Son for us all, help us in response to offer to you our hearts promptly and cheerfully. May we indeed be entirely yours. Lead and direct us, we ask, into those rich fields. For we are your sheep, and you are the shepherd, the great shepherd, who has laid down his life for us. We ask these blessings in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.